So today we come together to meditate, chant, listen to Dhamma, practice together, the occasion being the end of one year, beginning of a new year. Nowadays, the Christian calendar, which starts the year with January, January the 1st, has uh, kind of taken over the world because of business, education, and the convenience of society. Uh, many, many countries around the world, Christian, non-Christian, they use these dates and so many countries it's a public public holiday it's a time when people sometimes visit family <coughs> less fortunately it's a time people often go partying get drunk have associated problems mm-hmm. for us maybe it's a good occasion to celebrate uh, good fortune that we are still alive here in the world with the chance to practice what the Buddha taught. And the Buddha encouraged us to come together as a group to meditate and chant, recite the teachings like this, even though they didn't have New Year's Day in the time of the Buddha they would come together on Ubozata Day, so the full moon which arises tomorrow. People come together, so it's nothing unusual. And we can reflect on the, the value of the Buddhist teachings that have come down to us every new year since the time of the Buddha to this very new year. Um, Christian era 2017 going to 2018, Buddhist era 2060 to 2061. Or just, you could say, another day, but it's another day with the Buddhist teachings here for us to hear and to practice. That's our good fortune. We've all got that much merit. We're born in the time when the Buddhist teachings are here. And it's also this time we're celebrating a hundred years since Lumpur Chao's birthday. He was born a hundred years ago, roughly, in northeast Thailand, Ubon Rajatani, where his monastery is, Wat Nongbapong. And so people in particularly there, but in fact all around the world now, because his students are everywhere, monasteries, monks, nuns, lay people practicing all over the world um, are remembering Lumpur Cha and his great wisdom, compassion, devotion to the practice and contribution to um, spreading Buddhism around Thailand and around the world. 
And again, like with the Buddhist teachings in general, we're lucky we still have Lumpur Cha's teachings to read, listen to, and we have the living Sangha who are still here to lead us and guide us in this monastery and in many other monasteries. So again, it's a time to recollect our good fortune. The Buddha Anusati, you recollect the, the Buddha, the qualities of the Buddha. Dhamma Anusati, recollect the qualities of the Dhamma, which the Buddha taught and pointed to. Sankhanu Sati, recollect the qualities of the well-practiced Sangha, such as Lumpocha. This is something as Buddhists we do every day, as we chanted just now, the recollection of Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Maybe we chant and have heard the words so often that they just go in one ear, out the other. They don't really affect us very strongly. But as soon as you bring up mindfulness and recollect the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, meaning you turn your mind, turn your heart to recollect those qualities, then it can affect you in a very deep, profound way. Brings up happiness, joy, which is something very important to us because we have to get through the difficulties of living in this world gives us wisdom, direction, guidelines, what we have to do, how to practice, how to live our lives well. And we recollect those who have already practiced, the, the Sangha, both the living Sangha and those who have lived but now passed away, monks, nuns, even laymen, laywomen who have practiced well, and realize the Dhamma. We recollect them and it brings joy, can be very immediate joy, happiness to our heart. It's not bound by time and place. So anytime you think of Buddha, you think of Dhamma, think of Sangha, it can bring up joy and happiness for you. when we're maybe very ill or we're tired and exhausted, we can still chant, we can still recollect the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Even if you're lying in bed, you haven't got the strength to sit up, you can still chant in the lying down posture. You can still meditate, recollecting Buddha Dhamma Sangha lying down. If you're sick, or if you're in a different situations, traveling, working. We've always got that opportunity to turn to recollect Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. There's no limits to this. And that's our good fortune that we've heard the word of the Buddha and we have faith and we have interest to practice. But we have to bring that to fruition bring the potential to fruition. Otherwise, it remains something good in the world, but doesn't really affect our lives or our hearts very much.
unless we bring Buddha Dhamma Sangha into our heart, those qualities, and we really focus our minds on them. So this is why we come together on these occasions, because it gives us a chance to practice. Uh, we can practice tonight, all night, just devote our time, our energy to Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, and to improving ourselves as human beings, finding some real happiness inside, peace, happiness inside. Because that's what the that's what the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha points to. The cause of peace and happiness lies within us. Even though it may the path, our journey, spiritual journey begins externally by hearing the teachings, our aim is to draw the Dhamma within. They say it's Opanayako Dhamma. We draw it within to inside our heart. Then it can really affect us and change us, bring up our potential as human beings. So it's not something that's just outside of us, external, something to be brought into our heart, pointed to, re reflected on, be mindful of, or awakened to, which is an important thing on tonight, because tonight we're practicing all night and you have to wake up many, many times. You use the Dhamma to help you wake up. The Dhamma can be when we point our mind to our meditation object and go beyond the hindrance of sleepiness, dullness. It can be chanting or listening to Dhamma that awakens the mind, brightens the mind. So we can awaken the mind through meditation, chanting, listen to Dhamma. And you see it helps if there's many people practicing together because you see somebody else putting effort into their practice and gives us some inspiration to do our own practice. When we're on our own at home, say, it's very easy to give up or get distracted, stray from the practice. As we know, when we're at home, it's easy to follow our moods, desires. You want to do it, you do it. When you don't want to do it, you don't do it. When you come to a place like this, you have to try harder. Even if you don't want to do it, when you see other people doing it, maybe you feel, oh, I better do, do my bit. <laughs> so it helps when we practice together. And that's one part of the Dhamma, is that we all have something in common. Human beings, men, women, young, old, whatever your background, where you're from, you know, we have things in common that the Dhamma points to. So tonight is the last night of the old year. Everybody is getting one day, one year older today. Everybody has to deal with that fact that we get older as human beings. And as we know, as we get older, it doesn't get easier. The body gets weaker. 
more aches and pains, more illness as time goes on. So with the change of time, we have certain challenges we have to face up to. But everyone is in the same boat, nobody's any different. We all have to face the challenge of aging, sickness and eventually death. Nobody's any different. It doesn't matter whether you're very rich and powerful, famous, or you're... Nobody knows you. <laughs> Same. The nature of life is that it's subject. Once you've been born, you age, you get older, you have to face sickness, you have to face death. Today someone was telling me, early in the year they celebrated the birth of their first grandchild, but now they have to deal with the onset of cancer, and maybe they can't treat their cancer. Your birth and death, they come very close for us, in our families, in the world around us. Another family, the mother got diagnosed with breast cancer, few weeks later the daughter got diagnosed with breast cancer together. So they're having to face that together. That just shows you we are human beings, we face these things, all of us. It's, it's common, our common experience in this world. And that's why the Dhamma is so valuable, because it gives us answers and ways to deal with these simple truths which affect us all. One of the basic practices we can use as um, as Buddhists and learning to live in this world in a good way, skillful skillful way, is developing the Brahma Vihara Dhammas. And Brahma means uh, divine being or sublime being. It refers to certain deities or gods in the heaven realms. Uh, Vihara means dwelling place. It's the dwelling place of the sublime beings. But they're also meditation objects and themes that we develop in our practice to help us deal with living in the world, living together with other people and dealing with our karma as human beings and the problems and ups and downs that life brings. So the Buddha encouraged us to practice this every day, just as we've, as we've just chanted. Metta, Brahma Vihara. Metta is goodwill, friendliness. It's that wish for myself and everybody else to be happy and free from suffering. This is both a meditation and it's just a daily practice and requires us to pay attention to that thought, that in, intention. Because how often do we lose our metta, our goodwill, living in the world, in our families, our workplace, or even if we're on our own, how often do we lose that quality? And you'll notice, as soon as you lose it, your mind starts to suffer, becomes darker. So the Buddha said it's something you have to reinforce and practice over and over again. Right, tonight we come together to meditate uh, 
and people are doing this all over the world. So it's a good, maybe a very good occasion to practice metta and begin with oneself and then spread the thought out to everyone in the world. Male, female, animals, humans, any beings, anywhere, in any state. May they be free from suffering, may they be happy. It's one particular time that you can maybe do this and feel it has some meaning because there are people coming together all over the world, meditating, chanting, often obviously celebrating as well. But you can have a real sense of wishing the people, the beings of this world well on this occasion. It's about how we set up our mind, how we think, or you could say how we talk to ourselves. Lumpur Cha used to say a lot of meditation is about having a conversation with yourself. And if you have metta, then obviously it's a friendly conversation with yourself. You notice how often in life, when things are not going our way, or we face problems, you know, our internal mental conversation loses metta and becomes something very negative, complaining, unhappy in different ways, often becoming very angry with ourselves or with the world around us. So a metta practice, it's a, it's a meditation as well, and it's helping you guide the way you think, the way you think, the way you speak with yourself, and then obviously how you speak with other people. And you have to learn to bring this up for yourself first, before you can really have metta for others. Because if you haven't got metta for yourself, well then your metta for others will always have a hole in it. There'll be something missing. Sometimes it seems easier to do it the other way around. So we feel sometimes oh, it's easier to have goodwill for others, do things for others, but we don't feel ourselves, we don't feel ourselves that we deserve any goodwill. We're not good enough. And we can remember all our faults, our mistakes, the bad things that have happened to us. So often it's hard to develop metta for ourselves, but actually it's just natural to have metta for yourself. In the time of the Buddha, there's one king, Pasenadi, who, um, like most people, had a mixture of good and bad in his character, but he did have some interest in Dhamma. And he, one time, is with his queen in the bedroom, and he asked her, yeah, who do you love most in the world? And the queen was very wise, and she didn't answer how he thought. He, th- he thought she would answer him, you know, I love you, he's the king. It's the guy, but she said, I love myself most of all. And the king was at first a bit hurt, but then his wife was very wise and said, well, don't you love yourself the most? And he said, yes, I do. And then he was still doubting the whole thing. So the next day he went to see Buddha and said, did she answer correctly? And the Buddha said, yeah, of course. As human beings, once we're born, 
who do we love most? It starts with ourselves. Like Ajahn Chah used to say, you know, if you don't believe this, just look at what happens. Say you have a fire. Sometimes, say in the forest, monks, we make bonfires when we're cleaning, cleaning up branches and leaves. If you get too near the fire, your arm or your leg is too near the flames, you know, who, who pulls their arm back? You do. You pull your arm back straight away as soon as it's hot. If someone else is too near the flames, they have to do that, don't they? As soon as your, your hand or your foot is hot, you pull it back because you love yourself most. That's just a normal human reaction, say, to heat. So we have, we can use this, this basic truth that we love ourselves the most, uh, to, but to learn to love ourselves skillfully. And you notice, you know, especially at New Year, we often make New Year's resolutions about how we want to improve things and change things in our life and get rid of some bad habits and do things differently in the New Year. We often think like that. And it's often it's a, you know, it's a reaction to not being happy with ourselves and not being happy with the way things Ah, and often we go too far, we get angry with ourselves. But if you're going to make a resolution or really improve yourself as a human, whether it's in meditation or any other aspect of your life, you've got to start with some goodwill. Some, you've got to be friendly to yourself. Wish yourself well as a starting point. If you're coming from anger, it's not going to work, is it? If you hate yourself, want to punish yourself, blame yourself, then it's going to be very difficult to develop skillful, good qualities of mind from that starting point. So when we come to practice meditation or any aspect of our spiritual practice, we always have to come back to this beginning point. May I be well, may I be happy. And we shouldn't see it as something that's selfish or self-centered. It's coming from wisdom, understanding that uh, human beings, we do have to start with ourselves first, because we know ourselves, and we do love ourselves first. But of course, once we know how to love ourselves, be friendly to ourselves, do the right thing for ourselves, then we can learn how to do that skillfully to others and help others in a true way. So when we practice metta for ourselves, we have to think about this. It doesn't always mean giving in to our every desire, everything we want to do. We don't spoil ourselves all the time. Sometimes we do give ourselves an easy time when we need that. But sometimes we do have to be firm with ourselves. Not always be, you know, say what we want to hear. Sometimes we have to tell ourselves what we don't really want to hear. We have to be the bad guy, because that's what's needed sometimes. Ajahn Chah used to say it's like the guy who makes a clay pot. 
whether it's spinning a clay pot on a wheel like we do nowadays or in the old days, I mean, just turning it with the hands. You know, you have to keep a firm hand on your piece of clay as you shape it into a pot. If you're too loose with it, it'll just collapse, fall apart. But if you're too firm with it, that also won't work. You'll squash it or break it. And our mind is like that. You, know, you have to be keep a firm hand on it in order to train it and develop it. But you can't be so firm that you squash it, oppress it, bully it. That won't work either. So a lot about, a lot of our practice is learning this skill to find the balanced approach and see what's needed from time to time. And you'll see, sometimes it's appropriate to really boot yourself up the backside. <laughs> Teach yourself to do something that you don't want to do because you're stubborn or to stop doing something that you should stop but you can't be bothered stopping. You keep indulging in some bad habit. Sometimes you have to be really strong with yourself. But then other times you also have to learn how to relax. And that's a skill. And you, you can see how it's going by looking at your own mental conversations as you're meditating. You know, what's going on in your mind? You might have a basic meditation object. Maybe it's the object of loving kindness or the breathing meditation or recollection of the Buddha, Bhutto, Bhutto. But as you're doing that, you know, what are you saying to yourself? And sometimes you have to be very firm and tell yourself to stop sitting there fantasizing, daydreaming, planning all kinds of things when it's a time to meditate on the breath, maybe. Or you have to tell yourself, sometimes you have to gently guide your mind back to the breath because you're feeling very stressed already. Maybe you have to remind, remind yourself to relax, calm down. But these are skills that come with the practice. It's the practice of loving kindness, but as you meditate, you're becoming aware of your state of mind, what you're thinking, how you're talking to yourself. And a lot of meditation is, is, is this, getting to know yourself. And it's just like other people. You, you learn how to have metta for others once you learn how to have metta for yourself. And other people are the same. You know, how often we begin our relationships with other people, just judging them on first appearance, jumping to a conclusion, this person I've just met, I like them, I don't like them. How often we do that. But to really help someone and be a friend, true friend to someone, you have to get to know them, don't you? You have to communicate with them, be with them, see what they're like, see what their good points are, maybe accept their weaknesses and bad points, just as we do that with ourselves. So you can see, if you're learning to have metta for yourself, you can learn to have metta for other people. And you can't just jump to conclusions about the way you are or others. So we say you're learning to develop true mindfulness. It's like we say non-judgmental 
awareness. And that, that f- f- word or phrase can be misleading, but it's pointing to this ability to know yourself, know somebody else, know the way things are without getting caught up into your judgment, your reaction. Having enough patience, enough awareness to see and then to learn. And what you'll find, particularly when you practice um, metta, kindness, you have a lot in common. As I pointed out earlier, you know, everybody in this world has to face and deal with aging, sickness and death. Everybody has to deal with the fruits of their karma. And some karma comes up, ripens in a good way, some in a not good way. And there's nobody in this world who just has good, good, good experiences, pleasant, happy, easy life, easy experiences. That person doesn't exist. That would be another judgment, you know, jump to conclusions when we look at other people and think, oh, their life is so easy, mine is so hard. It's not really like that. Because everybody is made a mixture of karma. Everybody has to face different problems sooner or later in their life. The important thing is to develop the right skills, how to deal with them. And this is where the Brahma-Vihara practices come in. If you develop metta every day, you're bringing your mind back to that sense of goodwill, friendliness to yourself, and then spreading it out to the people around you. Even the ones you don't like, don't get on with, or even the ones that harm you, understanding on the deeper level we're all the same. From metta leads on to karuna, compassion. Because as you understand your own mind and you have your own goodwill, your own aspiration to um, find happiness for yourself, you naturally learn to see what brings suffering. If you want happiness, you'll see, well, what what's taking my life in the other direction? What leads to suffering? Where does it come from? And then you have that desire to avoid doing things which bring suffering. Or if you are suffering already, you have the, the wish to end the suffering, because you know it's painful. Once you're developing that to yourself, then it's easy enough to extend it out to others. If you've experienced pain, you can understand how someone else might experience pain in the same way, in the same kind of situation. If you've been ill and suffered, then you meet someone else who's ill, you know, oh, they're going to suffer the same as me. Someone else has some problem in their life, it may be something that you've experienced, or at least you can understand how it will bring them some pain, some suffering. So metta naturally leads on to compassion. And if you can develop that attitude, it doesn't mean to say you can solve all the world's problems, but it's an attitude, isn't it? It's developing the skillful, sublime attitude of compassion, empathy for others and their suffering. And with it comes wisdom. Because as you're learning to free yourself from suffering, 
and you think about others and how they may be suffering, then it brings you some understanding what needs to be done to avoid suffering or end suffering. We've all got this to some extent, but it's a quality that we need to develop more to become wiser and sharper in doing this, to avoid suffering. As you meditate, maybe simply just seeing the pitfalls of falling into states of anger or greed, jealousy, worry. When you start to see the, the suffering of those different mind states, then your next step is, what can I do to avoid it? So you bring up more mindfulness, take more care of your mind, look after it more, more carefully. With other people, you can't necessarily know their mind. So sometimes the wisdom comes just recognizing the signs of suffering in others. Maybe somebody is not being very pleasant to you, rude to you or something, but instead of just reacting with anger, you look more deeply and say, "Mm, maybe this person is suffering. So it helps you to understand them better. Or maybe you can't stop them behaving in an unskillful way or a way that harms others. But you can have compassion for them because you know that what they're doing is going to bring them more suffering in the future. So that's that's old uh, reflection. You know, you don't really need to get angry with anyone, even people who do bad things, terrible things. Once you understand about karma and you're practicing metta and karuna, you realize they're only bringing suffering to themselves and they're going to have to suffer for whatever they've done. You may try to stop them or find ways to prevent them from causing harm to others, of course. But when you have anger arise in your heart because you're looking at those people, as soon as you bring up compassion, you realize there's nothing to be angry about. They're just harming themselves. So you actually change to feeling sorry for them your empathy and realize they're not doing anything good for themselves or others. The same goes to for mudita, the third Brahma Vihara. You know, the more you're aware of your own mind, the more mindful of your own mind states, and you'll see well we do have a lot of things in our own life to be happy about, to appreciate. This is mudita, recognizing the success, the happiness in our lives and then in the lives of others. So you you might sometimes meditate and find your mind is not very peaceful, but just the fact that you have the opportunity to meditate is something to be happy about. Many people in this world don't know how to meditate or... They're not allowed to meditate by other people. Or they just never encountered any teachings that teach them how to look after their mind in this way. They just don't know. If you've had the good fortune to come in contact with the Buddhist teachings, even if you don't feel you're very advanced in your practice, and your mind not very peaceful, just the fact that you can practice 
is something to be happy about. Let's say the fact that you're in a place like this on New Year's Eve rather than at a party getting drunk or something. This is something to be happy about. The fact that you know other people who also practice Dhamma, keep precepts, meditate, something to be happy about. If you have a thought, you bring up the thought, think of the Buddha, Dhamma, the Sangha, there's something to be happy about that human beings can do this. It's different from animals, isn't it? You know, however cute animals are and however much you love them, they don't know how to be mindful of Buddha Dhamma Sangha. And they can't realize the Dhamma in this life. We can. We have that potential. It's like we have a, a gold mine waiting within our heart. We may not have got the gold out yet, but at least we've got the access to it. We've got a chance. That's something to be happy about. And when you're, you see the happiness in your own experience, even if there are some other unpleasant things in your life, just seeing that good fortune, then you can see it in the lives of others. You see the good fortune in the people around you. The mudita comes again from waking up, waking up to the truth. Life is not all bad, <laughs> it's not all good either, but it's the Buddha was encouraging us to wake up to the way it is, the truth. To be mindful, to be aware, rather than just always reacting with our judgments and our opinions. You know, everything is bad <laughs> or everything is good. We're learning to be mindful of the way things are. So some things are good, some things are not so good. Mindfulness is like that. It's in the middle, non-judgmental. The highest happiness in in Buddhism comes from when we're awakened to the truth of the way things are. We're not trying to develop a particular positive outlook on life. You know, kind of fool ourselves into a state of bliss and say, oh, if I can just see everything is good, I'll be happy. The Buddha wasn't encouraging us to do that either. He was encouraging us to just wake up to the way things are so that we'll stop grasping at things that cause us pain and suffering. Stop grasping at them and making them ourselves, but just knowing, oh, this is the way it is. So the practice of equanimity or upeka, Brahmavihara, helps us with that. As we just chanted, you know, kama sakha, kama dayana, kama yomi, kama bandhu, kama patisarana. You know, I'm the owner of my kama, heir to my kama, born of my kama, related to my kama. Understanding the law of kama helps to bring the mind to equanimity. Just knowing, oh, this is the way it is. All the actions I make in this life have results, have consequences. The good lead to good consequences, good results. The bad intentions, the unskillful actions lead to the suffering of myself and others. But you're particularly using upeka with dealing with all the ups and downs that our old karma brings us. Every day things come back to us. 
some pleasant experiences, some unpleasant. Nobody gets just pleasant experiences. Nobody gets just unpleasant experiences. We get a mixture. And this is based on our karma. But having enough awareness and wakefulness to understand this is the way it is with equanimity. Learning to keep the mind balanced in the middle and accept this is the way it is. So if you do get some good news, not to get so lost in it and expect good news all the time. It happens sometimes for the right causes and conditions, but then they change and things pass. So you won't get good news every day, but bad news also will pass. But having the, the mindfulness and the wisdom to reflect, oh, this is the fruits of my karma. And this is, when you meditate, this is where you really see how the mind gets lost. You have some pleasant memory, and we like that, we want more of that, and get stuck on that, thinking about it. We have some unpleasant memory pop up, we hate that, we don't want that, want to push it away, get rid of it. And you see how your mind is affected just by a memory, just pops up. It seems to be random, but it's not. It's based on our attachments and what's gone before. And just look at the way it affects your mind as you meditate. Again, these conversations you have with yourself, the way you talk, the way you, your attitude is as you're meditating, as different thoughts and memories come up, how do they affect you? Can you maintain your equanimity, stay cool, stay calm, or do they overwhelm you? You, know, you end up being very miserable, just sitting on your own, quietly meditating. You can become very sad, very angry, very upset, just having a memory or a thought about something. This is where upeka is so valuable just learning to reflect on karma and sometimes we have to accept I made a mistake you know, this 2017 that went by this last year I probably made a few mistakes I have to accept that because the year is finished now and you can't go back and relive it or change history so you have opaca towards the mistakes you've made but you learn from them so that you don't repeat them rather than just carrying them around and always falling into a state of guilt every time you remember. You know, sometimes we meditate, we have that feeling, ouch, when you remember something that you did or said that hurt in, you know, six months ago, you go, ouch. <laughs> it's a mental reaction. We lose our equanimity and we get upset. I shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have said that. But if you can keep your equanimity, maintain your mindfulness, and you reflect, mm, that's happened, and you know it wasn't good, but it arose and passed away. The good that you did, you also reflect in the same way. That was good, that was right. I did so many good things this year, and that was good. But it, the good you did arose and it passed away. No need to cling on to it. Let let it you know become a a memory that you walk around thinking I'm the one I'm the good person. Maybe stick a label on your 
jacket. I'm the good person. I did so many good things this year. That's losing equanimity. We have to accept we, we've done good, we've done bad. We learn from it. Obviously the good, we can continue doing it, but not to attach to it or let it delude us. And the bad, we learn from it and then let it go. And then with others, it's the same, you know, the people we love. Just thinking about the mother and the daughter, they got both got breast cancer within a few weeks of each other. And the mother is going to be worried about her daughter, the daughter's worried about the mother, but they both got the same problem. That's the time to practice equanimity. Not easy, but that's the, that's what we have to do. The people we love will take away our equanimity very quick through worry, concern, attachment. You notice the people we love are also the people we often hate. (laughs) Because you love them, you're always thinking about them, holding on to the idea of them, wanting them to be a certain way. So when things don't go the way we want, we get upset. If it's because of their own decisions and choices, then we get angry with them. If it's someone else, we get angry with that other person. So if it's, say, somebody is harming our own, the person we love, someone else comes along to harm them, maybe we're ready to kill that person because we've lost our equanimity. We have to use equanimity with ourselves and then with the people around us all the time. It's not easy, but these are guide, guides and themes to develop every day in our practice. Metta, Karuna, Buddhita, Upika. They're the basis for peaceful living, whether it's in the family, the workplace, the monastery, society, or even if you're on your own, because you still have to develop the four Brahma Viharas on your own. Your monks know this. Sometimes you living on your own in the forest, there's no one around. You still have to develop the four Brahma-viharas. You're there. As Yen Chah used to say, if we don't look after our mind, it always flows down to the lowest point. So even if you're totally on your own, you've got no one to blame <laughs> but yourself, you will start blaming yourself. The thoughts go to the negative thoughts, blaming yourself, or maybe just blaming memories of other people who are long since gone. And you can be totally on your own and totally miserable. So the Brahma Viharas have to be upheld all the time, wherever we go. Sometimes we make that mistake, we think, oh, if I get away from everyone, then I'll be happy. (laughs) And you go off on your own and, ah, you still got your own mind to deal with, haven't you? Your own thoughts, your own words coming up, bubbling up into your consciousness. I remember one time I was looking after Ajahn Chah. I used to attend to him when he was sick. And I used to do it for weeks and weeks on end. So after a while, after a few months of that, you get quite exhausted. So I thought, oh... This year, it was actually the last year of his life. 
But halfway through the year, I thought, oh, I'm so exhausted. Maybe I should go uh, go away and get a rest, get a break. So I went off. Ajahn Anand sent me to a bit of forest in southern Thailand, an area I'd never been to before. And it, we arrived there. I went with one other monk to spend the three months of the range retreat, just to meditate quietly, have a break. I thought, oh, this is good. I get away from all the monks, because at Ajahn Chah's monastery has 70 monks, 60 nuns. Every day, hundreds of lay people would visit Ajahn Chah. So I thought, oh, get away from everybody, just be alone in the forest. The first day we arrived, the local village headman came along and he said, oh, where you're staying used to be a communist camp. And they all had guns, and this was a very dangerous area. Now they've all gone. This was a couple of years after the communists in the southern Thailand disbanded. So we think we'll turn it into a monastery. So he had a very good idea. But I thought, oh, this is good. It's a place where the communists used to live. No one wants to be here. There's no road, no electricity, no facilities, nothing. There's just for trees and wild animals. So I thought, oh, this is good. Far away from everybody. But you still have your own mind to deal with. I mean, you can be far away from everybody. You have all your memories, your mental baggage. So you sit in a forest, literally hundreds of kilometers from other people. No one around you know, not a single person that you know. But you still got yourself. <laughs> you got your own mind your own thoughts. If you don't look after your mind with these Brahmaviharas, then you can just be miserable. You can even go crazy. Actually, Ajahn Chah used to say, anybody who's not an Arahant is already crazy. So his definition of crazy was somebody who doesn't see that everything is impermanent and not self. Someone who hasn't done their Vipassana meditation. They're crazy. That's all of us. We're all crazy. <laughs> they used to call a monastery. Monastery is a place like a, a mental home, mental asylum, where you're improving your mental well-being, your mental health. But if you're on your own in the forest, oh, you can go crazy. You know, the Buddha used to warn about that. He used to say, if somebody goes off into the, mon uh, into the forest on their own, and they're not ready for it, maybe it's overwhelming. He gave the simile of the elephant and the tiger. The tiger's walking through the forest and he sees a really nice pool of water and it's a really hot day, like in the summer now. Sees the elephant bathing in the water and thinks, oh, that looks so good. The elephant's having so much fun, having a bath, throwing the water around playing around. I really want to do that. So he hides, and then when the elephant's moved on, the tiger sneaks down into the pond. And the tiger is just like any other cat. As soon as it's in the water, it goes, ah, <laughs> can't swim. So his arms and legs everywhere, and he starts crying out, ah, and he can't do anything, can't enjoy himself, can't swim, can't bathe. So he just scrambles out of the water and runs away totally on his own, but just out of his depths, literally, and runs away screaming. And the Buddha said, somebody who's not ready 
for the forest. They're like that. They go into the forest and uh, they're with themselves, but they haven't trained their mind. They don't have the Brahmaviharas. So when bad memories come up, not happy, or when they, they get caught into their fantasies, just imagining, I'd like this, I'd like that, spend the time daydreaming, but they don't have enough qualities to look after their mind, so it's not a very good experience for them. For me, it was a okay experience, and lots of time to meditate, which was good. But I could see whatever you go to, when you go into the forest on your own, you take your karma with you. You can't escape your karma. So whatever you've been thinking about before, you'll carry on thinking. Maybe it's a good opportunity to really see your thoughts and change some of your attitudes and thoughts. So it's good in that way. But you have to be careful. Now, when I was looking after Ajahn Chah, it was very tiring, and everybody had their views and opinions about how we should look after Ajahn Chah. So you've got a lot of pressure, do this, do that. <laughs> Every day many monks would come and visit and look and see how you're looking after Ajahn Chah give you an opinion on it. So I had a fair amount of memories of all that. I went into the forest, I thought, hmm, what will I do with all these memories? But I just used the Brahma Viharas. I think about my good fortune to have met Ajahn Chah, my good fortune to look after Ajahn Chah, be near him for long periods of time. That was my good fortune, so that made me very happy. Then I thought, oh, now I've got the chance to meditate in the forest on my own. I've got no responsibilities. It's more good fortune. So I just use the Brahmaviharas like that to bring up some happy thoughts, to help let go of some of the stresses of work and other responsibilities that I'd taken on before that. And you have to learn how to do that. Then it started getting really good. My meditation, I was getting really good. I could meditate for many hours, very young, so I could sit up all night. So I ended up meditating every night, all night, with another monk. We just meditate all night long, and very happy, very peaceful, very calm. And then it got too calm, so it's like, oh, this is good, I don't want to go back. <laughs> So I thought, oh, this is, this is nice, nice place to meditate. Meditate all night long if we want. And in the morning we go out on arms round, get food, come back, carry on meditating. I thought, this is just what I wanted. But then the lo local people started to take some interest in us. They're all farmers and they're all very poor and it's, they were spread around the mountains, which are just forest, and they're trying to clear their forest to make coffee plantations. So some of them started to come on the full moon night and the new moon night. And we said, well, we only had a very small little bamboo hall. And said, if you come, you've got to do what the monks do. We just meditate all night. They said, okay, we'll do that. So they couldn't meditate all night. About midnight, they'd lie down. There's about six or seven villages. And then in the morning, they asked, they said, did you meditate all night? I said, yeah, we meditated all night. It turned out they were just there to see whether we really did meditate all night. 
kind of checking up on us. But then they told their friends, so then more and more people came. So by the end of the three months range retreat, the last day, 300 people came. And I was thinking, oh, got 300 people coming to offer dana now. When we had started, there was nobody. Now we got 300. That's more than Ajahn Chah's monastery. Ajahn Chah's monastery is 70 monks, 60 nuns, and you know, maybe 100 visitors. So there's actually more people than what I left behind. And when I thought that, then that night I had a dream. Ajahn Chah came and he, he, um, I was staying on an island in the in the ocean, thinking, oh, this is a nice, peaceful place. And then this big cruise liner turned up with thousands of people on it, and they all stopped and they all got off and started having a party right where I was meditating. And Ajahn Chah just walked up to me, looked at me, and said. <laughs> you thought you'd get away, but nobody gets away. That's the way the world is. You no escape. <laughs> so well, that's time to go back to Wapapong. So the end of the Vasra, I went back to Wapapong. Not long after that, Ajahn Chah died. So the important thing as we practice is look after our mind, whether we are with lots of people or whether we are on our own. You have to learn how to look after your mind and use the Brahma Viharas, metta, karana, mudita, upeka. So I've been talking for quite a while now, so maybe I'll finish the talk there. Um, we can pay respects to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha and then um, if you want to go down, have some refreshments, and we'll carry on meditating, and then at midnight we'll do Parita chanting. And if you know how to do Paritas, you're welcome to join in. And for those with the energy, we'll be going on till morning, at 4 a.m., morning chanting. And then after the morning chanting, when we finish, there'll be some breakfast for everyone. It's Kunwit here. Can't see her. Oh. <laughs> Anyone see Kunwit? Me cry hen Kunwit, me? Me hen. Well, maybe there'll be some breakfast. <laughs> better, better speak nicely to Tony. <laughs> anyway, we can uh, pay respects to Buddha Dhamma Sangha. <laughs>